Hi, Freshhead listeners, it's Will. I wanted to tell you about a new project we're launching called Fresh Ed Flux, which aims to encourage new voices in education podcasting. Are you a graduate student who wants to develop, produce, and deliver a creatively complex, multi-voiced, globally rich, narrative-style episode for Fresh Ed Flux? If so, we want to hear from you. We are interested in putting together an episode that will showcase your deep-dive storytelling, which is informed by cutting-edge ideas and issues in education broadly defined. Your episode will be made for an English-speaking audience, but could include other languages that have been translated into English, and it will be between 20 and 30 minutes long. If you are the successful candidate, you will be awarded a stipend of 2,500 US dollars, and your episode will be aired on Fresh Ed next year. I'm really excited about this project, and I encourage you to get in touch with your ideas. You can find more details at freshedpodcast.com flux. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com flux. Now on with today's show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we continue our exploration on Teach for All, Two weeks ago, we explored Teach for All counter-narratives. Now we look at the empirical evidence across contexts where Teach for All operates. With me are Matthew Thomas, Emily Rauschenberger, and Katie Crawford Garrett, who recently have co-edited a volume entitled Examining Teach for All, International Perspectives on a Growing Global Network. The collection brings together research focused on Teach for All and its affiliate programs to explore the organization's impact on education around the world. We very much see this book as a a starting point, as a launch pad. And so in uh, 2015, there was a special issue in the Educational Policy Analysis Archives that Rolf Straubhauer and and Daniel Friedrich um, came out with. And that really, I think, was cutting edge at the time in terms of coalescing a group of people who are researching different aspects of the, the teach for all phenomenon, if you will. And not much had been done since that point. And so we felt like five years uh, was a good time to kind of bring together some other researchers and particularly as more and more affiliate programs were being launched around the world as the network was growing, uh, that there was a, a gap in the knowledge base. So I think we see our volume as contributing to that and just maybe scratching the surface of the number of issues that that need to be addressed. Matthew Thomas is a senior lecturer in comparative education and sociology of education at the University of Sydney. Emily Rauschenberger is senior research fellow at Manchester Metropolitan University. And Katie Crawford Garrett is an associate professor of teacher education, educational leadership, and policy at the University of New Mexico. Matthew Thomas, Emily Rauschenberger, and Katie Crawford-Garrett, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks so much, Will. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks very much. So Teach for All affiliate organizations are found in something like over 50 countries at this point. What sort of educational problem is Teach for All actually trying to solve? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So Teach for All affiliate organizations are in 54 different countries, uh, exactly, which uh, is, is a remarkable number. And the problem they're trying to solve essentially is espoused to be closing the achievement gap, which would be in kind of more American parlance um, or basically ending or reducing educational inequality around the world. Um, and so one of the ways we often think about this is the, the zip code issue. In other words, the idea that 
somebody born into a particular zip code or into a particular neighborhood or region should not have their educational opportunities or their life outcomes limited by the fact that they're born into that particular circumstance or that that particular area or socioeconomic status. Um, and so that's kind of the problem that they aim to solve through their constellation of programs around the world. And is it really a global problem, this idea of the achievement gap? Uh, it's a really good question. Um, certainly, we see educational inequality manifest in different ways in different places around the world. So uh, the fact that it's not equal everywhere, of course, I think we would all agree to that. Um, but one of the things that that I would argue is that it, it does manifest differently in different contexts. And so it's not necessarily a uniform problem, even though there are some shared similarities in the way that, that people have educational inequality play out in their different lives. And, and I would imagine that um, there's been many different programs and projects and ministries trying to solve said problem. How does Teach for All go about trying to solve this problem of, of the education gap or educational inequality? Yeah. So um, essentially, I think it's important to start by drawing a distinction between the Teach for All organization and its various affiliate programs um, that are associated with the organization. And we might liken this to the, the hub and spoke analogy that some people have used to describe these types of um, contexts or scenarios, where Teach for All would be the hub that's the organizing body, if you will, or uh, overall um, organization that helps to coordinate the efforts of the local affiliate programs. And as I said earlier, there are 54 current affiliate programs. Each of these programs then in different countries around the world uh, kind of operate under a two-part theory of change, although different scholars, I think, would argue the extent to which one of these parts is, is taking over from the other. But essentially, the idea is that they recruit highly talented, high achievers, um, who often are, are young in their 20s to commit two years to teach in underperforming or underserved schools uh, as, as full-time teachers usually, um, in the idea that they're both helping to ameliorate the quantity and quality issue, quote-unquote, of teachers in those respective schools. So that's the first part, the theory of change, is to, to recruit these really amazing people to go into schools and to teach for two years as part of their commitment to the affiliate organization. The second part then, and this is where I think some people would argue that this is becoming more and more common or a larger component uh, over the years, is creating a leadership pipeline or a leadership development stream for these individuals after they complete their two years of service for the affiliate organization to go, to, go on and do, quote unquote, bigger and better things. So in other words, to affect change at a higher level, uh, maybe as a policymaker, maybe in a different field, but still related to educational equity or inequality in a certain way, but that they're creating this network of outstanding individuals who now have experience working in schools and theoretically have gained an understanding of what um, poverty or um, systemic um, structural issues look like and therefore are better positioned to try to tackle those issues at a grander scale after their fellowship. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I would imagine one of the critiques of um, Teach for All, just as, as it is in Teach for America, one of the founding programs, um, is that it sort of it promotes this sort of neoliberal pro-privatization agenda within education. So, I mean, do you see a, a neoliberal ethos, so to speak, in Teach for All's approach? 
Yeah, I'll jump in with um, an answer to that question. So uh, what I would like to do at answering the question is refer to some of the chapters in our book that do draw on neoliberalism as a framework for looking at particular affiliate programs and what's happening with those affiliates in particular contexts. So um, one example is a chapter written by Jenny Elliott, and she compares the discourse of um, Teach First UK with Teach South Africa, which is no longer affiliated officially with Teach for All, but once was. And she identifies a good deal of business language within the discourse of both both institutions, both organizations, um, a focus on impact, accountability, those kinds of things that seem to suggest a neoliberal ethos underpinning both of those entities. There's also pervasive focus on the individual versus the collective. And another chapter that highlights that tension is Alex Southern's um, chapter on whales, where she examines how students in, in the regular initial teacher education track and the Teach First track respond to and talk about notions of professionalism. And one of the things that she notices is that with the Teach First teachers, there's much more of an emphasis on the individual, on, again, these notions of impact, targets, accountability, whereas the, the students in the regular IT program are more focused on the collective, on collaboration, and on some of those processes. And lastly, I'll just point to um, Geosaurus chapter, um, focus on Teach for Spain, I, I like this a lot about his chapter. He uses the term neoliberalization so that it emphasizes that it's a process and looks at the policy networks that act on Teach for Spain, which highlight a lot of edgy businesses and philanthrocapitalist entities. So those are just three examples, and I'll let my colleagues jump in if they want to, but those are three examples from the book that kind of highlight the ways that neoliberalism is at play kind of in the broader Teach for All network. Hmm. So then the question is, is it part of that hub or is it the individual spokes that are you know, neoliberalized, so to speak? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, and because we're talking about 54 different countries, it's, it's difficult to overgeneralize too much. Uh, there are certainly, you know, context-specific issues, but mm -hmm. there is a certain uh, set of unifying principles and core values that organizations attached to Teach for All must adhere to. In other words, must sign up to when they uh, initiate their local country Teach for X country um, variation. And so, I think there's there is a lot of power by the Teach for All hub in terms of driving the the approach and the extent to which. It's neoliberalist. I think they probably have a strong um, series of uh, mechanisms that they can put in place to 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 push things in that direction. Um, if if not mandate, at least they certainly can exert some degree of pressure. Yeah, I just wanted to add too about the neoliberal thing. So I think it's important to note that when neoliberal principles are applied by some organizations, it's in the interest of fostering equity. Now, a lot of us may argue with whether that that actually happens. So, for example, with um, something like school choice in the U.S. or, you know, opening the market so that consumers of schools have choice, does that lead to greater equity in education? You know, there's clearly a lot of debate about that. But I would say that some of the choices that Teach for All is making that we might call neoliberal 
they would likely argue that it's in the interest of fostering educational equity and closing the achievement gap that Matthew was referring to earlier. Hmm. So you're sort of saying that there's some sort of social justice framing that Teach for All takes when they're approaching this problem. Um, yeah, there's definitely a social justice framing, and it features prominently in the discourse of almost all the Teach for All organizations or affiliates in different countries. And it's, of course, started with Teach for America, um, which in my chapter, I kind of discuss how, you know, the global movement started with Teach for America and then the UK version of Teach First, which is quite, started quite independently of Teach for America, actually. But they use the social justice framing, which brings greater attention to the inequalities in education, which is a great thing, as well as attracting uh, recruits to their program that are dedicated to, you know, addressing this issue. With that said, they are careful, if you notice, about sometimes the language that they use in that framing, because uh, social justice as a term is quite loaded and contested and and used uh, really at the core of a lot of uh, traditional university-based teacher education. So instead, to kind of differ- guessing to kind of differentiate themselves, teach for all has a tendency to use terminology like equal opportunity in education or inequities generally, and less the social justice terminology that can refer to structural inequalities as being more predominant in influencing education. So they do use it, but in, a, in their own kind of way. Hmm. Teach for America, I, when I was in university, it was sort of becoming a big thing. And thinking back on it now, I always, I'm, I'm struck by how much power Teach for America had in, in terms of, you know, the, my fellow students who were all thinking about doing Teach for America as sort of a, a pathway to a successful career. But at the same time, you see Teach for America sort of at, at so many different levels of policymaking in, in America within different school districts, but also even, I guess, globally at places like the Clinton Global Initiative. How does Teach for All operate in terms of sort of its political power? Like, would you say it's a political force and, and, and how so? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, and I think your question is great in that it starts off with the history of Teach for America. And I think Teach for All is an organization and, you know, obviously was co-founded by Wendy Kopp, who initiated the idea of Teach for America in 1989 and 1990. And so as an organization, I, I think Teach for All really learned from Teach for America in terms of how to develop, uh, cultivate and implement and utilize its political power. Um, and so, you know, as, as you suggested in the American context, um, we think about Wendy Kopp in 1990, you know, raising several million dollars uh, immediately to, to jumpstart Teach for America. And that's a really impressive feat. Um, and I think kind of signifies the ability to do that and, and the growing political power. And then we fast forward to just a couple of years ago where in the state of Massachusetts, um, all three candidates for the state commissioner of education were Teach for America alumni. And so, as you mentioned, at all levels of the system, we see perhaps arguably growing influence in, in political spaces in the states. And so I would argue that Teach for All in in its various forms has capitalized on that political power and also the lessons that they learned of how to develop it uh, in the American context. And so as one example that's that's not in our book, but uh, the case of Latvia is a really interesting example where, um, and I know there's a chapter in, in Jameson Brewer's book about the Latvian context as well, 
but we see big changes in the education policy space coming through directly through the Teach for All affiliate program um, to the extent that the, the kind of motto it's, itself of the, the one day mantra that we'll see, you know, all children receive a high quality education has actually been adapted into the Latvian um, education system from the Teach for All organization. So there are certainly several other examples of that as well. Um, Katie mentioned Gio Sauer's chapter earlier, um, and he writes a lot about how the, the assemblages and the policy networks are able to exert influence largely through their connections. And so at the national level, we see you know large collections of really powerful people from corporations, from foundations, from government um, serving on the board or uh, certainly being strong advocates in different media spaces at the international level, Teach for All, you know, if you look at the, the board of directors, obviously it's a very, very powerful collection of people. Andreas Schleicher from the OECD um, has been a board member and has spoken at, at the annual global conference that Teach for All puts on every year. Um, so we do see a, I think, a growing confluence of powerful players in educational governance um, at the international level of Teach for All, as well as at the affiliate level in the different national organizations. Can we make the jump that then some of these, some of the interests between some of these big global organizations are actually aligning? Or is that too much? I would say so. But Emily, this is kind of your space. You mean uh, within the network of Teach for All, the, the sponsors and, and kind of this whole global network, if their interests as different, you know, as sponsors have aligned? Is that what you mean? Yeah. So, you know, so so Andrea Schleicher from OECD sort of speaking at the Teach for All global conference or annual conference and being a board member, you know, does this mean is there certain similarities between the OECD, which puts out the PISA exam and something like Teach for All? Well, yeah, their interests do align. Not perfectly, I would say. But, um, you know, the OECD is, you know, about, again, measurable change in education toward, you know, equity goals and expanding access and, and teach first or sorry, teach for all, you know, furthers those goals of such development organizations and international organizations. However, at the same time, it's really interesting because in our book, uh, we have a chapter that examines the leadership uh, discussions between teach for all head Wendy Kopp and Andreas Leiker of the OECD and others, other prominent people who support or have similar interests as the organization, but there's not necessarily a complete alignment. There's some pushback of some of the interviewees that Wendy talks with about, you know, the teach for all ideology that they're questioned. And um, among those was really the evidence base for what teach for all attempts to do, because teach for all at the international level always speaks about we're building a a pipeline of leadership. This will solve, you know, the educational problems. We need leaders who can tackle, you know, all these different levels of problems within the education systems. But again, that's simplifying the issue, and and you'll see a little bit of pushback saying, you know, that's not this is necessarily wrong in wanting to bring that goal forward of a leadership pipeline, but that you know, it, it is a wider problem than that. But uh, Kind of disagreements, though, haven't really led to any change of the teach for all discourse widely or, or even in the interviews. It's kind of just absorbed. And uh, and so I don't think the interests, you know, they align in, in general senses. But I think uh, there are particularities that maybe everybody doesn't uh, agree on. Yeah. Right. And then I guess the other question would be, how does some of this this global discourse that's circulating at places like the annual conference for teach for all, which brings together 
potentially multiple institutions, global institutions coming together to talk about Teach for All. How does that global discourse translate into to, into various local contexts? I mean, your your book is one of the few books that has really brought together empirical studies of, of Teach for All affiliates. So what do we know about some of the practice in these different contexts? You know, how connected to the global discourse is it? The discourse of Teach for All, as, as Matthew mentioned earlier, is very much taken up by the affiliate organizations as, as kind of a condition of being part of Teach for All. Um, with that said, though, there is adaptations in, in nearly all of the national context out of necessity. You know, there's different regulations, there's different educational stakeholders, systems and regulations and everything. So the uh, influence of those local uh, programs to the wider Teach for All organization and its discourse, we haven't seen much evidence of how those individual programs are influencing or changing Teach for All. They might be, like you said, they have a, an annual Teach for All global conference at which all these affiliates meet and they probably have wonderful discussions and share learning. However, the impact of that on, on again, the, the wider Teach for All ethos um, hasn't seemed to change particularly with any discoveries at the local level. They've more led to cross-pollination of ideas on new education businesses or lesson plans or lower level uh, innovations that m members kind of uh, are inspired by and, and put together. So, so yeah, well, we do see programs being tweaked at the national level, but overall they seem to fit the mold um, that Cheat for All uh, sets out. And with that said, I want to bring attention though to uh, Katrine Nesji, her chapter on Teach for First Norway, because it's a really good example of an organization that was uh, very much in line with Teach for All in its approach and its you know, recruitment of top graduates for teaching in low-income schools. But because it was initiated and managed by the government of Oslo along with Equinor, the uh, leading energy company in Norway, it wasn't. It didn't tick the box of being an independent, uh, independent public-private organization. So that was not included uh, within the Teach for All network. Um, because they require you to be independent of government and of business and just be, again, work through public-private partnerships and not uh, just one stakeholder. If I may add to that, I, I think, um, as Emily said, uh, Katrine's chapter is really fascinating because, as she said, they're not officially part of the Teach for All organization, but they still send their recruits to the Summer Institute in the UK that is run and managed by Teach First UK. And so there's still a really strong synergy, even though it's not an official affiliate program. But her chapter is fascinating because um, she basically looks at, at these different stakeholders that are involved in the program, uh, the, the local government, the company itself, the oil company, and then uh, the teacher education institution and why they're all involved and what their different motivations are. And she basically shows how in a very strong, essentially a welfare state, uh, you know, in Scandinavia, we see this application of a much more marketized approach uh, to the training and the recruitment of teachers. And Equinor, basically their stake in the game is to try to recruit really highly talented graduates of STEM that they can later hire for their oil company. So I guess maybe on one hand, we could applaud Teach for All for not allowing them into the network because they don't tick all those boxes, as Emily said. But on the other hand, it's quite an interesting example of how that discourse and some of those ideas from the global organization have been localized in a context that is so drastically different than, let's say, the United States 
where Teach for America has has been going gangbusters. It's so, I mean, Matthew, you just brought up this whole thing about, you know, recruiting very intelligent STEM students to, to potentially go work for a big gas company. You know, do all affiliates really recruit the best and the brightest? Is that something quite common across all of the affiliate organizations? And, and do you see any problems with this? I would argue that it depends on how you define the best and the brightest, because there'll always be, you know, um, yeah, pushback from declaring those in the top universities uh, as your crew for the best and the brightest. But um, with that said, if that is the definition we're going with, then yes, the Teach for All organizations in each country aim to recruit high achieving graduates from the top universities in the country of their countries. However, what's interesting too to note though is is that that's required for them to sell the program as a highly effective organization at recruiting a new talent pool and raising achievement among low-income students. So um, without that catch, they're not ticking the boxes of really things policymakers are most worried about, which is increasing the teacher workforce and the quality of the workforce. But it's interesting to note uh, at the evolution, I mean, Teach for America and Teach First are our oldest models. Teach First was started in the UK in 2002. The first cohort was in 2003. And that top, that first cohort was majority, the majority of graduates were from uh, Cambridge and Imperial and quite a few from Oxford. And so that grabbed headlines and that helped establish the legitimacy and the claims of the program. And same with, again, Teach for America back in 1990. It was, it was uh, Ivy League, tons of Ivy League graduates. But over time, as the model expands across the nation and goes into more cities and regions and communities, they need to expand that pool. And so you've seen in Teach for America and Teach First, them going into more universities that are not the top Russell group in the UK or the Ivy League in America. And that's a point of pride as well later on. They they point out the diversity of who they're bringing in and more recruits that are first to graduate in their family from college. So again, I would still classify any of those people probably best and brightest if you know, uh, but as far as the the claim of the best and brightest they started with, it's a different, it is a different pool a bit, or expanded pool, I should say. Yeah, maybe maybe Andrea Schleicher could help out with uh, assessing the best and the brightest of, of recruits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I mean, so Teach for All has been around now for quite some time. And, uh, you know, as you said earlier, is involved in 54 countries. Do, what's, what do we know about the wider impact that this organization has had at this point? Well, I think Teach for All had a, a large impact on how we think about teaching and learning and also teacher education. So there's a paradox out there that teachers are both the problem and the solution to educational inequality. Um, and I feel like that narrative is very much alive in the Teach for All discourse. There's definitely tension with veteran teachers when Teach for All recruits come into the schools and sometimes perceiving that veteran teachers are the problem with why students in a community are not achieving at equal levels. And at the same time, those same recruits are perceived as a potential solution to that underachievement, which is something we've already talked about, that they'll, that they'll come in and using their elite education or their youthful energy, be able to rectify problems that have existed for decades, if not longer. 
There's also, I wanted to point out something else in the discourse. In many places, the recruits are not referred to as teachers. They're called associates, ambassador, ambassadors, um, fellows, participants. There's a whole host of terms, but teacher is almost never used. Well, my sense is that in many of these contexts, like the U.S., teaching is a low-status profession. And in recruiting people to go into this program, um, perhaps it's more alluring to say you'll be an associate for two years, then you'll segue into a leadership position later on, rather than you're going to become a teacher, which feels maybe like it's taking on a more permanent role um, that is not desirable. My own research outside of the U.S. has been in New Zealand, and um, countless of my interviewees said to me that their families highly discouraged them from pursuing teaching, but did not discourage them from pursuing Teach First New Zealand because it seemed like a higher status choice post-university. So um, I think there's something to be said for that. Well, it's quite interesting because it's not about um, reducing the achievement gap as we started with. It's more about the the individual receiving some sort of benefit for his or her career by being an affiliate or, or an associate to, to Teach for All program. Exactly. It's a form of, um, you know, what I've written about called a neoliberal subjectivity, too, of, you know, I'm doing this to advance my own individual well-being, my own career options, and the equity piece sort of gets lost within that resume building sort of discourse that, that Teach for All is known for. And just to add to that briefly, one of the chapters in our book looks at Teach for Lebanon, uh, which is a really fascinating context where there has, first of all, there's not been a lot of research, but the authors essentially highlight how in that particular context, these fellows from the Teach for Lebanon program were actually paid higher than the teachers in the schools where they were teaching. Um, and they were called volunteers uh, because it was part of that volunteerism that Katie was talking about, where they were, quote unquote, donating two years of their life to uh, address educational change and, and inequality while they were um, putting off their future career in um, banking or, you know, some other law or something like that, that would be a much higher paying salary. And so the idea from the CEO, apparently, according to this chapter, is that they needed to pay them at a bank salary rather than a teacher salary to try to encourage people to join the program. So there are all these issues and tensions that are just really fascinating when we think about how fellows or associates uh, or core members are framed and, and what they experience in, in their two years in the program. There's so many interesting insights like this in your book that, that come out across the chapters. And it just makes me wonder since, you know, this is this, it's an empirical book that you've really have done very interesting research or different authors have done really interesting research in these different contexts. But it makes me wonder what sort of access were, were, were the authors able to get or, or unable to get? You know, when I did the interview with um, Jamison Brewer and his co-authors a couple weeks ago, they basically talk all about how Teach for All or Teach for America for his first book was, was very, very upset with, with these narratives that they published. Um, I can't imagine that Teach for All opens its doors in all these different contexts to let researchers come in. I mean, so what sort of resistance did you experience or did, did authors that contributed to your book experience? 
Well, one thing that we noted was the authors um, many times were very creative in how they gather data. Um, so, for example, Rolf Straubhar's chapter, which we already mentioned, um, he analyzes the Teach for All talk series. So he's taking publicly available information and using it to analyze some of the broader discourse of the organization. Other authors have gained entry through the universities because now that um, many affiliate programs need to partner with universities for their teachers to get certified, um, that becomes a natural entry point for researchers who might be affiliated with those universities and actually working with um, the Teach for All recruits, they're able to maybe gather some data that way. But we, we definitely agree that in order to answer some of the unanswered questions about the organization, more different kinds of research needs to be done in which Teach for All really allows access to the organization. Mm. I started my research in New Zealand through entry through the university, as I mentioned, many people have, um, but through building a relationship with the staff of Teach First New Zealand, I was able to come to go back this past year and observe the summer institute, the preparation period. But I know that's rare. That kind of access is very rare. And another thing we discussed is that Teach for All frames itself as a learning organization and that um, we believe in that case, they should be more open to outside researchers coming in and observing all parts of the program not just the parts that they want to show us. So I'll let my colleagues jump in if there's if there's other comments on that. Well, I can say from my experience uh, in starting research on Teach First, I was initially going to uh, not only explore kind of uh, how Teach First started, but also look at uh, Insignia Chile uh, and Teach South Africa. And at that point, I was the head of Teach or Insignia Chile declined any participation or discussion on the topic. But Teach South Africa was much more welcoming and supportive. Um, I didn't eventually pursue that avenue of research because it kind of uh, had to scale down my study. PhD students are often overambitious at their beginning. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, it's a, but actually Teach First at the time, um, you know, I have been, or I've, I'm an alumni of Teach for America. I joined the organization 2004 as a core member. And um, after teaching a, a third year, um, I had a friend in the core that had gone over to Teach First to actually be a participant. This is, the, I think, the only person I knew of that had done Teach for America with me in my my region and then went over to do this whole program in, in uh, the UK. And so um, I went to I went to the UK to uh, to work. I was interested in living abroad, but found you know such big differences or, or uh, yeah di differences to me in the in the way Teach First and, and Teach for America um, seem to run. So so as a staff member also of Teach First, I can say that they were a little bit more open with me in regards to access since they had hired me previously and and I had a, a good relationship with them. Um, but that said, uh, I mostly interviewed people who had founded the organization and not current staff members for my research into the founding of it. But they were open, but not as guarded as others. So I think it does vary by national context a bit. But Teach for All as an organization, though, seems to follow more of the guarded model in the U.S. So what, do, what does this mean, this limitations in terms of access to research? What does it mean for sort of the future of research on Teach for All as an organization? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think we very much see this book as a, a starting point, as a launch pad. And so um, in uh, 2015, there was a special issue in the Educational Policy Analysis Ar Archives that 
Rolf Strawpower and, and Daniel Friedrich um, came out with. And that really, I think, was cutting edge at the time in terms of coalescing a group of people who are researching different aspects of the, the teach for all phenomenon, if you will. And not much had been done since that point. And so we felt like five years uh, was a good time to kind of bring together some other researchers and particularly as more and more affiliate programs were being launched around the world as the network was growing, uh, that there was a, a gap in the knowledge base. So I think we see our volume as contributing to that and just maybe scratching the surface of the number of issues that, that need to be addressed. And so we would really love for other people to continue this area of investigation and whether that's doctoral students who are working on their PhDs, whether that's teacher educators who are working at the universities um, that are partnered with Teach for All affiliate programs. As Katie mentioned, we haven't seen a lot of uh, close research relationships between independent researchers um, that are maybe not necessarily contracted by Teach for All affiliate programs. And so I think more of those kind of collaborative research projects would be really amazing. Um, and particularly in the newest Teach for All affiliate programs. So in the last two to three years, there's been the launch of many organizations in Africa um, and they're launching more every year. Um, it would be really lovely to see a robust body of research on these programs and what impacts they're having, as you asked earlier, um, how they're interacting between the global and the local and what does that look like in different contexts, um, how American, quote unquote, are these programs in their implementation and a whole other range of issues. So I think for any listeners out there, we would definitely encourage you to uh, consider this as a research topic or reach out to one of us or one of the other researchers who's been engaged in this process for a number of years and think creatively about how it could be done. Mm. Well, Matthew Thomas, Emily Rauschenberger, and Katie Crawford-Garrett, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed, and congratulations again on your new edited collection. Thanks so much, Will. Thanks. Thank you. Matthew Thomas is Senior Lecturer at the University of Sydney. Emily Rauschenberger is Senior Research Fellow at Manchester Metropolitan University. And Katie Crawford-Garrett is an Associate Professor at the University of New Mexico. Their new co-edited collection is entitled Examining Teach for All, a transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.